us. Or you know what I'm going to do? I'm actually, uh, I've got a friend here today. I'm going to ask him to come pray for us. Uh, some of you may know David Horner is the founding pastor of Providence Church. And I just want to, I want to say something he wouldn't tell you, but um, so humbled me a few years ago. We bumped into each other here in town and uh, he's been praying for our church every week uh, since we come here to plant the church. And I'll tell you, not all pastors are like that. Some pastors are like, oh, another church, you're going to take our people or whatever. And I uh, get real territorial. And he's one of the most kingdom-minded guys I've ever met. And uh, he's uh, just able to be here as a guest today. So, Dave, would you mind coming up and just praying as we open up the scriptures this morning um, and just praying for our body? And we've had nine years of being here, and you pray whatever the Lord leads you to pray, but pray about what's going to happen next. So, yeah, you don't want me to pray about everything because I haven't preached in several weeks. So okay, we'll be here doing that. <laughs> okay. Let's do pray. Father, I thank you for this church. Lord, there's so many things that you've been doing here through the years. Uh, the great leadership that you've given them uh, through Scott and his team, Lord, is something that is a great encouragement to the rest of the churches in the city. But Father, today as, as he opens the word of God to us again, that ministry of the word and, and prayer and power that come together in the gospel, uh, the love of Christ being manifest through how he preaches and what he says and the way he lives it out, the way that's working in this congregation is such a great, great testimony to the wonder of the resurrected Savior. And so, Lord, we commit this morning to you. We're so thankful to be here together and to know that, that there is an expectation of you to exalt your Son and to open our eyes to see more of the greatness of your great love for us. And so, Father, we thank you for that. And just pray for Scott to have great freedom as he preaches this morning. We're so, so very grateful to you for your love for us in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, brother. Love you. And thanks for the... Just to publicly, thanks for the ministry you've had in our city and the impact that you've had. And guys like me stand on your shoulders. And so we're, we're thankful for you. Um, like I said, Mark chapter 2 is where we're going to be this morning. Mark chapter 2 and verse 18. Jesus is talking about new stuff in Mark chapter 2. Have you thought about the new? New is attractive, isn't it? Like marketers know this. When you say something's new, people are drawn to it. Sometimes you don't even realize what you have is old until you see something new. Like have you ever had a friend who got a new car and they said, Hey, come on, come for a ride in my new car. And you think your car's fine. Like your car, it's paid for. You drive, it gets you from point A to point B, and maybe it's not as nice looking as it was when you first got it, but it's, it's, it does the job. And then you get in your friend's car who's got a new car, and it's got that new car smell. Do you know what I'm talking about? You can buy a new car smell. It's a lot cheaper than a car, by the way. But you got that new car smell, and the windows are all clean, and no kids have drawn on the dashboard yet. <laughs> My own personal issues that I'm dealing with here. There aren't french fries jammed between the seat that you couldn't get with the vacuum from the gas station. And, and then you start looking, they got a nice new cup holder and you start seeing the features. And all of a sudden your car's starting to feel older and older. And he's, maybe he's got that, you know, like how some of the cars have the GPS right in the dashboard. You don't have to wear out your cell phone battery with GPS. It's got one of those cameras so you don't run over skateboards when you're going backwards. And, and you start seeing the nice new cup holders and all the nice things that the car has. And maybe it's so new it has some of those features on it that you think, that'll be nice someday. And then, maybe it's one of those really new ones that has like the smart brakes. Have you seen that? Where you can't run into something, the car stops itself. And you start thinking to yourself, my car is a piece of junk. It's a safety hazard. I can't believe it's even on the road. Like, I've got to get a new car. There's something about new. I was talking with my wife the other day. I can't remember how it came up, but we were just chatting about when you get new shoes as a kid and how that feels. And I remember when I was a kid, and I don't know if they still do this or if you had this experience, but I remember being asked, every time we get new shoes, the guy at the store would say, do you want to wear those ones home? I'll tell you, I never said, nah, I think I'll wear the old ones. When I walked in, the old ones were fine. Now I feel taller and faster. 
and more fleet of foot, more life-footed. I mean, it just feels so good. And you put the old shoes in the, in the new shoe box, it may as well be a garbage bag. Like, I'm not wearing those shoes anymore. It's the new shoes. There's something about new. And that's why marketers, they've, they've perfected this. How come Crest, you go to the store, Crest, Colgate, they say new on there, new whitening formula, new something. They've been around for like a thousand years. Like, how do they have new on the box? They know, new scope, new iPhone that people will wait in line for days to get, new version, new model, pick the product. Marketers know that new, it gives a promise. It gives a promise of potential. It gives a promise of change. But those of us who've been around long enough, we know that oftentimes those promises are empty. Oftentimes it's just a cleaned up version of the old thing that's actually what you're getting. And even if you get the car, it too becomes old eventually. And the features, they break, and it still just gets you from point A to point B. And so new is not quite as appealing when you've had some of those, but what if I told you there's a new thing that if you possess it in your life, not just know about it, not just can recite it, not understand the concepts of it, not even just you've prayed a prayer about it, but if you possess it, it changes everything about your life. That new thing that we're talking about is we continue to talk about Jesus' love. It's a new kind of love. It's not even compatible with old models. It's a new love in a category all by its own, a love without limits. And that's what we're going to continue talking about today in Mark chapter 2, in verse 18. What's happened so far in Mark, it's always good to get the context. We started this at the beginning of the year, and verse 1 of Mark just talks about the gospel of Jesus Christ, which then asks the question, what is a gospel? It means good news. Then who's this Jesus? And that's what Mark tells us through these first eight chapters is who Jesus is. And we see he's got an authority unlike any other authority. We saw that in chapter 1. He teaches with a different kind of authority. It's not the content even. It's the way that he's teaching. Like He's not just quoting a bunch of other guys. He's saying this stuff. It's coming from him. And then who is he? Well, he's this guy. He can, able free, he can cast out a demon. He can free you from any bondage. He can set you free regardless of what's happening in your life. You need to know that today. And then you go on and you start to see this theme where he's loving with a different kind of love. And we started to see it in Mark chapter 1 and verse 40. When he cleanses, not heals, cleanses a leper. And we talked about how leprosy is never talked about as being healed anywhere in Scripture because it's a picture of sin. And he starts dealing with sin. And then Mark chapter 2 and verses 1 through 12, this guy gets lowered through the roof while Jesus is teaching. And Jesus doesn't tell him to get up and walk right away. He forgives his sin. Then he heals him. Now he's popular. And now he calls this guy named Levi a tax collector, despised, outcast. You keep seeing this love without limits and this different characteristics of it. Do you remember what happened last week? After Levi gets called to come follow Jesus, what Levi does is he throws a party. He invites all of his friends who are also outcasts, guys who aren't allowed to go to the temple and worship, and they start eating together with Jesus. And Jesus at this party, and eating was a sign of acceptance. And so Jesus is feasting. And these people come and ask the question, why aren't you fasting? Look at it in Mark chapter 2 and verse 18. What we get in this passage is really... We get to listen in on a conversation that happens. While Jesus is still part of this party at Levi's house, in verse 18, it says, Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Now, well, the Pharisees fasted twice a week. Luke chapter 18 shares that with us. John's disciples, they might be fasting because fasting was a sign of mourning, and John's been arrested. It's talking about John the Baptist. Look what happens. Some people came and asked Jesus, How is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting? But yours are not, and implied, and neither are you, Jesus. And we oftentimes, when we read that, we think of disciples. We think we mean Peter and James and John, like the big guys, right? They probably meant Levi, who's been a Christian for about 30 minutes, and his buddies, 
prostitutes, other tax collectors, people that are social outcasts, the disciples are those who are following you. They're learning from you. Who's Jesus hanging out with? It's all these people. They're clearly feasting. And guess what? They know how to do it. And Jesus answered, how can the guest of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And on that day, they will fast. And so he gives this illustration. He's the bridegroom in this illustration. And then he gives two parables. And so this passage is really multiple illustrations. And the second and third, par- or second and third illustration are these two parables. First ones he shared in Mark, verse 21. No one sews a new patch, or no one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the new piece will pull away and the old, from the old, making the tear worse. Verse 22, second illustration. No one pours new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskin will be ruined. No, he pours new wine into new wineskins. And so what happens here is that Jesus gets asked this question about fasting, verse 18. And then Jesus gives multiple illustrations. In fact, the last two illustrations are two illustrations illustrating the same point, verses 21 and 22, which I just want to pause and digress here for a moment, specifically since my wife is in the audience uh, today, and so are some of my friends. But... um, Jesus has given two illustrations to teach one point. Now, I'll tell you, one of the things that I do uh, in preaching is I ask certain people to sometimes critique me and uh, tell me things so I can get better, and I want to be humble in that. And one of the feedbacks I get sometimes is you give too many examples. My wife actually told me a couple weeks ago, we were heading on uh, vacation after the service, and we were talking about the sermon. I was talking about one part of it. She goes, yeah, you lost me there. You just give too many examples sometimes, and I get lost in the thing. And so that's, that's, that's not what you want to hear. I'll just say that after you preach. I got another friend who's a pretty smart guy in our congregation, and he said uh, to me before, you know, you give the point, and then you illustrate it, then I'm ready. Sometimes you give more examples, and sometimes you illustrate it again. He's like, just move on. I want more content. He doesn't even like talk like he needs the illustration at all. He's like, don't double illustrate stuff. And so then I sit down to study this passage. And I'm like, well, Jesus double illustrates stuff. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. To which I know my friend's going to say to me probably tomorrow, but you're not Jesus, so keep moving. <laughs> but Jesus here is giving these two illustrations, and they're both teaching the same point. The two illustrations are both teaching the old and the new don't go together. In fact, you notice when you look at the illustrations, he says, if you put them together, you ruin both. And so he gives the one illustration from like home ec class. If you've got a pair of jeans, they're your favorite pair of jeans, and you've washed them a bunch of times, you've worn them a bunch of times, and then you tear them, which happened to me recently. You don't take a patch that's brand new from the store that's never been washed before and sew it on the jeans. Everybody knows this because otherwise when you wash them, you're going to tear the jeans more and you're going to tear the patch. You'll ruin it. Then he gives another illustration about wine. Back then they didn't keep wine in bottles like we do today. They kept it in skins, specifically goat skins. And those of you who are maybe wine connoisseurs, you know that new wine emits gases and it will cause the skin to expand. So old wine skins have already used up their elasticity. They've already expanded. So if you put new wine into it and fill them up again, when the gases emit, it's going to break the skins. It's going to ruin the wine and the wine skins. What he says here, the point to get here, is both things are ruined when you try to put them together. But what is he talking about? What are the two things that are coming together that will be ruined? Well, context always answers our question when we're studying the Bible, right? We've talked about that lots of times. So what's the context? Verse 18 is the question that came asking about fasting. But Jesus isn't against fasting. Fasting is commanded in the Old Testament. We see that Jesus fasts. So he's not, he's not, the old thing isn't the Old Testament, and the old thing isn't fasting. It's these people that are coming, and you understand why it is that they're doing what they're doing. Some of them genuine. They're not all bad guys. They want to please God. They want to be loved. 
They want to be good enough. And so they have man-made religion, religious rituals that they've now done that aren't just what the Bible commanded, but that they've decided that they should be doing. And Jesus is saying, that's the religious system you're used to. And then what's the context? Remember our context. You go back to Mark chapter 1, verse 40. He cleanses the leper. And then what does he do? He forgives the crippled guy that comes to the ceiling. And then what does he do? He calls Levi, and they're at a feast. They're having a party. That's our context. He's been showing a love without limits. And what he's saying is, your religious rituals and my love without limits, they don't go together. What I'm doing is a new thing. It's not something you earn. It's something that's given to you, which sometimes can be more difficult. And what you're doing is you're trying to earn God's love. They don't go together. And if you try to put them together, even if you put new language, even if you put gospel language, even if you try to dress it up, it ruins both of them. And where does this come from, this desire for this man-made religion? Because every world religion other than genuine Christianity does it. It comes from an insecurity. And here's the thing you need to get today is that Jesus' love is secure. Jesus' love is secure, and those who possess it, not just know about it, those who possess it have an incredible security about them. And what happens with religion and religious rituals and these other things that we add to trying to get God to like us is it really comes from a deep insecurity. And we all have it. We all have insecurity, and insecurity is ugly. But you think about the, the religious insecurity. Here's the question, am I good enough? Have I done enough? You never know. You never know if you've done enough. Was it enough that you went on that short-term mission trip? Are you supposed to move to Calcutta and live with poor people and always try and t- you know, help them and the sick people and you're praying with them? And is that enough? And if you've been bad, you've been naughty. Have I done too much bad? How much is too much? And you never know. And insecurity, two truths about insecurity. One, it's ugly. Two, we all have it. You know it's ugly because if you've seen some of the presidential debates, you've seen pictures of it happening. Small hands, bad tan, look at your hair, little Marco, how about the ears? You got all this stuff happening. It's like, are we in the second grade cafeteria? Like, what's happening here? And the fact that they're just, they go back and forth and back and forth, you know that comes from an insecurity that's taking place. Here's the reality. We all have these insecurities. We all have those surface level insecurities too. Like some of you might be like, what are you talking about hands for? You know, you start high in your hands. Bad nails, you chew your fingers. Whatever your thing is, maybe like me, you're not that tallest guy. You hope nobody mentions it. You hope it, doesn't, it just doesn't happen. Maybe your ears are big or maybe they're small or whatever it is. We've got that stuff and we just hope no one talks about it. But I'm not talking about that today. I'm talking about a different level of insecurity. An insecurity that's at the core level. Am I good enough? Do I measure up? Do I matter? Does what I do matter? Does who I am matter? Do people like me? Am I loved? Those are core insecurities. And that's where this stuff comes from. And so here's these people in verse 18. Mark doesn't even tell us exactly who it is. I know we're talking about the Pharisees. We're talking about John the Baptist's disciples. And those are two studies in contrast, by the way. You've got the religious leaders of the day, the Pharisees. You've got John the Baptist's disciples. Jesus is cool with John the Baptist. John the Baptist is pointing people to Jesus. Remember, his ministry looks very different than Jesus, though. He's out in the desert, he's wearing locusts, and, or eating locusts and wearing camel's hair, and he's, he's more of a self-denial kind of guy. In fact, Jesus talks about this. You know, this guy came this way, you rejected him. I come another way, you reject me. The issue's you. And then you got the Pharisees, and they fast twice a week, and, and the people are looking at, these are the people that the folks are looking to, saying, these are the spiritually elite. And then Jesus 
you're obviously different. We've seen you teach with this authority, and then we've seen this love that you're demonstrating, but it doesn't make sense to us that they all fast and you don't fast. Can you explain that some of them are genuinely asking this question? There's probably some people there that are trying to trap Jesus too. But some of them just really want to know, why don't you fast? And so verse 18, they ask that question. Go back and look at it so we have our context. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people, some people, who, some people, maybe not John's disciples and the Pharisees, but some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? And remember our, what's happening. He's at Levi's house. They're feasting, not fasting. They're having a party that's going on here. In fact, when you look at Jesus' ministry as a whole, it's more characterized by food than it is by fasting. Because you look at it, he has the last supper, not the last fast. He feeds the 5,000. He doesn't fast with the 5,000. Which should relate with many of us because we love food. Don't we love food in this generation? Even though we got all these little niches of different foods, gluten-free, not gluten-free, extra salt, no salt, all that kind of stuff that we do. Uh, we got TV shows about food. There, even shows that don't have anything to do with food start making food on them. We got a whole channel for food. Did you notice? And some of you got a lot of channels, so maybe you do have this. There's no fasting network. <laughs> I haven't seen it. Maybe you got, you got more channels than me, maybe, but I, I, I've never seen it. And I wonder what would it be like? And you know what I'm pretty convinced it would be? It'd be a bunch of people who had a bad experience with cauliflower or kale, and they're really sad, and they're going, I'm going without food for because you had that. That's why you're going without food. Fasting was associated with mourning. Here's something to know, though. Jesus isn't against fasting. Even though when you look at his life, he's more associated with fasting, Jesus fasts. In fact, if you want to study on your own, Matthew chapter 4 and verse 2. He spent 40 days fasting, while he's being tempted by Satan. In Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 and 18, you can look up on your own later, he teaches his disciples about fasting. He assumes that they fast. He says, when you fast, he talks about then how to do it, and he's talking about the opposite of what the Pharisees were doing here. See, the problem was that fasting was required in the Bible one day, one day a year, on the Day of Atonement. You read about it in Leviticus chapter 16. And there are a couple other fasts that come up when the people of Israel are in exile, about four or five other ones. But they're not obligation. They're free. You're doing your freedom. You're, you're able to do it as you desire to do it. And the Pharisees, we read about in Luke chapter 18, they fast twice a week. Why did they add this? Why do they do that? And that's why if you're digging into this passage, you've got to start looking at what, what's ha- what are they referring to when they talk about this fasting? Because we know Jesus isn't against fasting, but then the context is fasting, verse 18. So what is it that's happening? And William Barclay tells us that what the Pharisees would do is they would whiten their faces, and so they'd intentionally look hungry. And they'd wear disheveled clothes. And the point was to try and get some merit from God and attention from people. And it would essentially be, if they had Facebook back then, they'd be posting, I'm fasting today, please pray for me. It's so hard. And then their value would come from how many likes did they get. We might not do it about fasting, but some of us, that's how you use our social media. So you know, you can identify with. It's sad to talk about for the Pharisees, but it's easy to understand, really, because it comes from an insecurity. Am I good enough? Have I done enough? Do I measure up? You should be like me then, because if I'm doing the right things, and I want you to do the right things, and and it just becomes this messy mix. Some of you have seen it if you've grown up in church and maybe had a legalistic background, and by legalistic, I mean there's a bunch of rules that people make up that are supposed to show whether or not you're spiritual or not. And a lot of times it has to do with what beverages you drink, who you vote for, what way you dress. There's always a certain code of language. I'm sure we probably even have it here at this church. Certain things you say and every, the people who are in understand what you're talking about and the other people don't, so they're not quite in yet. And, and there's all this different stuff. And what I found living at different places 
um, throughout this country is that it depends on where you're at geographically more than it does what's happening in the Bible and what denominational background you have or different brand of church you're affiliated with. My wife grew up with a background like this, and uh, one of the statements is attached uh, to the background she comes from for that specific denomination is, uh, don't drink, smoke, or chew, or go with girls who do. It's kind of poetic. It's on the Bible, but that's how you decided whether or not somebody was spiritual. It's easy to mock that stuff. It's just so easy when I'm going to do it. But do you realize what happens to this generation? You're not like a real Christian unless you're into social justice. You've got to love mercy ministries. Let me ask you this question for a second. What about those who are not spiritually gifted in mercy? Not that you're not supposed to care for people and have compassion for people. What about the people that are gifted in leadership and evangelism and generosity? What about people that have those gifts? They can't be real good Christians, right? Because if you really are a good Christian, then you've got to rescue people out of human trafficking. You've got to adopt. You've got to feed the hungry. You've got to speak up for the unborn and all those who don't have a voice. I'm not saying those are bad things. It's not bad to pray. It's not bad to be discerning about your language. It's not bad to not go see certain movies. And it's not bad to feed hungry people. We'd rather they were fed than not fed. Why? Do you realize you can do those same things? Adopt, rescue people out of trafficking, do it for the same reasons that some people don't go to certain movies and don't drink certain beverages? You're trying to earn something. You're trying to prove something. You can't earn something that's being given to you. It doesn't go together. They don't mix. You ruin both. That's what Jesus is saying. When he says the new wine can't go into the old wineskins. He's not saying the old wineskins are bad. He's just saying put old wine in it. He's saying put new wine in new wineskins. He's, he's not saying that the new cloth is better than the old. He's not, that's not even the point of the illustration. The point is you ruin both when you try to put that. They don't go together. Now, in the application of it, one is bad. Because it's going to leave you empty. It's going to leave you hopeless. What happens with the Pharisees at the end of the Bible? But those who possess this love have an incredible security. The problem for us is we go out and we try to earn something that's being given. And those who are being bad, you look at all the bad things that you could do. You're lying. Guess what he's doing? He's being the truth. It's being done for you, by the way. All the stuff that needs to be done, it's being done for you by him. So you're trying to hide your stuff and you don't want it in the company. And he's the light of the world. That's who he's being. And you're deceptive about it. He is the truth. And you're trying to figure out what's going to bring fulfillment in your life. He is the way. He is the life. He gives the abundant life. He is the shepherd. And he's the one who's done it. It's been earned by him. You try to put them together. It doesn't work. It'd be like going to the refrigerator and uh, there's a milk carton in there and nobody's around and so you skip the glass and not that I would do such things but you realize there's a leak in the carton and what are you going to do? So you go over to the, not to the trash but to the recycling bin and you pull out a recycling bin and you pull out an old carton of milk and you put the new milk in there and you think you solved the problem and you put it in the fridge and the whole thing gets ruined because there was old milk in there so the next time you go to drink it it's all rotten. That's what you're doing when you try to earn what's being given to you, they don't mix. The problem is it's oftentimes easier, it's actually easier to try and earn something than it is to receive it, which sounds counterintuitive. But it's by our nature we think we've got to be good, we've got to work, we've got to. It makes me think of a story I was sharing with a, another pastor last week. 
He's talking about forgiveness, and it was a story that a friend of mine was a lawyer in a mediation case, and uh, because of the nature of the story, I don't know all the details of it, but I, I do know uh, that there were two families involved. Both those families had lost their adult children, and they were in a motorcycle accident, a young man and a young woman who had just gotten engaged to be married to each other because a semi-driver stopped paying attention to what he was doing. He crashed into them, hit them. Um, it was so messy that you couldn't identify the, the people at the scene. And all the mother got in the situation uh, was some hair from her son's head. And my friend told me when they had the mediation, they were in a, a high rise and uh, both families were there, the parents of both of the children. And the truck driver was there and the owner of the trucking company and some lawyers. And so the truck driver came in, he was just shaking uh, being there and he felt horrible about what had happened, knew he was responsible. And the first person to speak was the mother of that young man and she took some hair, she had it in a little baggie, threw it on the table and said, that's all I have for my baby. Then grabbed a bottle of water, threw it up against the window, yelling, and then turned to the truck driver and says, but because Jesus Christ has forgiven me, I forgive you. And then the father of that young man said, because Jesus commands me to, I forgive you. And then the father of the young girl said, because Jesus has forgiven me, he's enabled me, he's given me the ability to forgive you, and so I forgive you. And the man's just sitting there, he's shaking, he doesn't know what to do in this situation. And the father of the young girl gets up and walks around the table, looks the guy in the eye and says, do you have a faith story? And the guy said, uh, I grew up Methodist, I was confirmed, I was baptized, I go to church now. And then the dad said, do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? And the truck driver said, no, I, I do not. And the father said, well, that's not good enough. He said, because Jesus didn't die for you. God sent his only child to die for you. He said, because we've both done the same thing. Anyone who breaks any of the law breaks all of the law. He says, we've both broken the law. We've both broken God's standards. We're both sinners. And so Jesus came and he died for your sin, to pay for your sin, to take God's wrath for you. And he didn't do it so that you could be confirmed, so you could be baptized, so you could go to church, so you could be a good guy. He did it so you could be forgiven. It's a powerful story of forgiveness. But put yourself in the place of the truck driver. How do you feel at that moment? You, you don't deserve this forgiveness. You're not worthy of this forgiveness. And that's the point. You're not good enough. Amen. God didn't pick you because you were attractive. He didn't pick you because of what you had done, what you hadn't done. And many times what we do, especially those who claim to be Christians, is we act like, I know that Jesus can forgive the you know, leper. He can cleanse the leper. He can forgive the prostitute and the tax collector. And I need his forgiveness kind of like I need a hand. Like I need some help. But I bring some stuff to the table. Do you see the good things I do? I feed hungry people. I rescue people from human trafficking. I share the gospel. How much is enough? How much is enough? What do you need to do? It's already been done. You see the picture that Jesus gives in that, in that first illustration? We haven't talked as much about that one, verses 19 and 20. Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? And he keeps talking about, he's talking about himself when he talks about the bridegroom which is interesting. We talked about a couple weeks ago. Some people say that Jesus never claims to be God in the New Testament, and Jesus did. He forgives sins. Only God can forgive sins. The Pharisees knew that. It was true from the Bible, and Jesus is saying, I'm God. 
Here he's using an illustration that comes from the Old Testament. You find it in Isaiah. You find it in Hosea. It's God the Father referring to himself as the bridegroom. Now Jesus is talking about himself here. And he's saying, I'm the bridegroom. You know what you find with this bridegroom? He is faithful even when we're unfaithful. He pursues us even when we're trying to do our own thing. You think about the, the Hosea illustration. I was just reading Hosea last night. In the first three chapters, you know what God does to Hosea? Hosea is God's prophet. You're my man. I want you to go speak the truth to, to my people. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to marry an adulterous woman. You think, well, God would never do that. He tells you, you can go marry a prostitute. And you have children with her. And he has multiple children. We don't know if all the children are actually his. Because she's being unfaithful. And she's selling herself. And he's pursuing her, and he's being faithful, and he's going after her. And you read Hosea chapter 3. He actually has to buy her back. That's his wife. He buys her back from slavery. Do you realize that's what God does with you? He's the bridegroom. In the New Testament, the bridegroom is Jesus. In Ephesians chapter 5, husbands, all husbands who are married are challenged to love like Christ loved. He says, husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. It's a sacrificial love. It's a, he, he created you, but he buys you back because your sin, you've sold yourself into slavery, your spiritual adultery, and he is faithful. Unlike any other husband would love to be faithful, he's faithful in coming after you, and he's the one who does the work. When he spreads his arms out on the cross and says, it is finished, it's not it is finished plus you be a good person. It's done. He did it. And he is faithful unlike anyone else. And so you, you think as a believer, maybe you come and you think, well, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe that. But then I've got to do some good stuff to add to that. And so, but I'm not really finding fulfillment. And you start going for other stuff. And you think, let me tell you, all of you who want to be married, you'll never find a husband like Jesus. All of you who are married, you don't have a husband as faithful as Jesus. And wives, the same is true. And all of you who think you're going to get it from your job, so insecure. From your, what? What is it? What is it for you? From some recognition? From some power? From some amount of money? From some amount of sex? From some experience? From some, if you just got enough praise from other people? If you just had, and then you, we just list stuff off the whole time that we're here. It won't work. Jesus, he's already done it. You're trying to earn something that's been given to you. Do you possess it is the question. Now, do you know it? You might be able to recite back every word I've said to you, but do you possess the love of Christ? Because when you possess the love of Christ, not only is it a secure place because it's already been done, and it was done by the one who is faithful, and it was done not having anything to do with you. It was all grace. It was all given to you in spite of what you deserve. But when you have it, do you know what else you have? An incredible satisfaction, a joy. Because Jesus is our, not means to joy, Jesus is our joy. Don't miss that point. Jesus is our joy. That's who he's talking about when he does this illustration of the bridegroom. He's talking about himself. He doesn't say that the wedding is the joy. He says that the bridegroom is what's being celebrated. Look at verse 19, how many times it's talking about the bridegroom and then personal pronouns for the bridegroom. How can the guest of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. And then he gives a picture of the cross, a veiled reference to him going to the cross. For the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. Think about a time of mourning. 
a time of longing then for him to come back. That's when you fast. But, but you're talking about the context here? Think about the context. He's with Levi's friends. Levi's been a Christian for 30 minutes, and he's got his buddies there maybe considering Christianity. Some of them maybe have converted to Jesus. Why in the world would they fast? They just discovered Jesus. This is joy. And what Jesus is doing here is they've asked a question that is associated with mourning, as fasting is associated with mourning. Read Matthew chapter 9, if you want us to get the background on that. And what Jesus gives is an illustration of joy, because a wedding was a picture of joy. Now, as a pastor, I've been a part of a lot of weddings. I've had friends who've gotten married. I've gotten married. I officiate uh, many weddings. I've officiated weddings for young people. I've officiated weddings for older people. I've officiated people from all kinds of different scenarios and situations. I've yet to have a couple come to the altar and they're upset about being there. If they were, I promise there would be a side meeting that would be taking place in that situation. There's always joy that's happening at a wedding. You think about your own wedding. I think about my own wedding this week. And I remember, I was just out of college and what it was like getting married, and I showed up, and my mother-in-law still to this day thinks I was late. I was not late, okay? I was there. I had plenty of time to get my tuxedo on and goof around with my friends, okay? So that, that couldn't have been late. So, but I remember sitting in this room, in the Sunday school room at the church that we were getting married at, and how anxious I was. Now, I didn't really have to do anything. I say, I do, you know, get to the thing. But it was just such a big day. And I remember what, what Shannon and I did as we met in the auditorium before the wedding. So we saw each other. I know that breaks all the rules and whatever, but um, we're not superstitious. So we met in this room, and I was standing up at the front at the altar at the, at the church uh, sanctuary, and she came in the back, and I can still picture her face. It was baby Shanna, by the way, baby Shanna face. It was such a great day of joy. And some of you, you know, weddings can, marriages can be tough and whatnot, but wedding is always a day of joy. It's a symbol of new beginnings. I oftentimes say when I'm officiating a wedding, what we're doing, we're not just formalizing a relationship you have. This is a new step. It's a new beginning. It was a time of joy. Now, for us, think about our weddings. We'd go to 20 minutes, 30 minutes, max 60-minute ceremony. Hopefully, that's max. Need a new guy. Anyway, 60-minute ceremony. Then you go shoot some pictures. Then you eat some food. You dance together for a little while. Three hours, in and out, you're good. And it was a time of joy. It was fun. And then the couple goes off on their honeymoon. Now, in the Bible, they didn't go off on their honeymoon. The honeymoon stayed there. They didn't celebrate for three or four hours. It was seven days. And people came together, and it was a time of feasting, not fasting. The reason why is because it was a time to celebrate. And they were celebrating the bride, and they were celebrating the groom. And if you were part of the wedding party, if you were to fast, that would be not only rude, it would break the rules. In fact, the rabbinical, rabbinical law, they actually had rules that said, even if the Day of Atonement came, any, any fasting requirements that would come, you're relieved from them. In fact, anything that would be a burden to you, that would be a religious burden, you're relieved. From, if you're part of the bridal party, you're part of a wedding party, no, no, you don't do any of that stuff. Because this is a time to celebrate. In fact, William Barclay says about the wedding week, he says that uh, a, a bride and a groom that are hardworking, you know, middle class or lower, lower income Jews, that'd be the happiest week of their life. Well, Jesus is saying, where does that joy come from? It comes from the bridegroom. Jesus is continually setting himself up in the New Testament as a picture of not your means to joy. Because some people think, well, I'll get Jesus in my life, and then the, some byproduct, like I want these gifts from him. He is the joy. It's the person of Jesus. So what does Jesus say all through the scripture? Start thinking of images. Some of you have read the Bible before. Some of you have read it multiple times. What are the different pictures that Jesus gives of himself? For people who are looking for a, a, a way, what does he say? He says, I'm the door. I'm the answer, is what he's saying. For here, he talks about a wedding. He says, I'm the bridegroom. I'm the reason to celebrate. 
He says to people that are hungry, I am the bread of life. He says to people who can't see and need uh, to be able to see, he says, I'm the light of the world. A woman comes to the well because she's an outcast and she's not able to come at any other time. And he says, you come for water, I'm living water. Those who drink of me, you'll never thirst again. I bring satisfaction is what he's saying. What does he say to people that are burdened and heavy laden by all the stuff that happens in religion? Matthew chapter 11, verse 20, 20, come to me all who are weary and burdened and I'll give you rest. But it's not just rest. Read the passage. It's soul rest. You're wearing yourself out trying to earn something that's being given to you. Take my yoke upon you. My burden is light because I've gone to the cross. I've done the work is what he's saying. So you've got all these images of Jesus. He's setting himself up as the source of joy. You know what's incredibly sad is that some of these people that are asking Jesus this question, we're going to see it next week, they're going to start plotting his death. It doesn't matter how many lepers he cleanses. It doesn't matter how many people he heals. It doesn't matter how many sins he forgives. It's so deeply ingrained in them. They just don't get it. Now, here's the thing to think about. These people, many of them knew the Bible better than us. The Pharisees, apart from Jesus, they knew the Bible better than anybody walking the earth. And they didn't get it. And some of these guys, even John's disciples, they don't get it. They, don't re- they, can, they know stuff about Jesus we don't know. They know what he looks like. They've seen him cleanse lepers. They've seen him heal diseases. They've seen these things happen. They know more about his love than some of us do. But they don't possess it. Do you? That's the question. Now, can you answer it on a quiz? Now, do you understand the concept? Has it transformed your life because it changes everything? It brings satisfaction. It brings the security because it's been done for you. That truck driver I was telling you about, um, when that father shared that information with him, do you know what he did? He cried out, I want that forgiveness. Can you imagine the desperation that he had? The guy that was shaken, and he's hearing about the things that he's done, but he's been trying to do it himself, getting baptized, getting confirmed. He said, I want that forgiveness. And the father said to him, then bow your head and ask Jesus Christ to forgive you. And ask him to be your savior. In that mediation room, that guy bowed his head, asked Jesus Christ to be his savior, asked for his forgiveness. And you know what the father did to him? As soon as he was done praying that prayer, the father embraced him, said, welcome to the family. Do you understand that's what your father does with you? You killed his son. You put him on a cross. It was your sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. But he did that for you. Is he not your joy? He's meant to be our joy. One guy, there's an illustration in scripture. He's not just the bread of life. He's not just the light of the world. He's not just these titles, the way, the truth, and the life. He's not just the one who came to give you abundant life. He's his treasure. There's a guy who's walking through a field and he finds a treasure. And then he goes and he sells his house and he sells his car and he sells his baseball cards and he sells his betting. He sells all of his stuff. And it says he has joy in doing it because of what he gets. Is Jesus your treasure? It's Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. How shrewd. And then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Imagine what his friends said. You're selling all your stuff to buy this empty field? These people won't get it when you've been drawn to the love of Christ. They won't understand. You're, you're giving your whole life to Jesus? Like, just add that on. Just tack it on. It's kind of the American way. Like, if you want to claim to be one of those evangelical Christians who say that you believe that stuff, be a nice guy, be faithful to your spouse, understand that. We may have some different political views. People are comfortable with that. You're going to surrender your life to him? And that's what he calls you to. That's what he did for you. You know why? Because you were his joy. 
Hebrews chapter 12 and verse 2. Let us fix our eyes on the author and perfecter of our faith, Jesus Christ, who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, scorning its shame, and he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. It doesn't say that he enjoyed the cross. He endured the cross. The cross was awful. Why did he do it? For the joy. Who's the joy? You. You're the joy set before him. So then why? So you could be reconciled to him. So he could be your joy. Is he? New things are attractive. They have a lot of potential. They offer a lot of promise. This isn't just a new thing to try. This isn't a category all by itself. The love of Christ is something that's so hard because it's so simple. A five-year-old can understand it. Adults struggle to do it. You have to receive it. It's been given to you. It's been done for you, which brings security. It's been done for you, and it is the source of satisfaction. The question is, do you trust him? Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for every soul that you've brought to this place today. I pray if there's anyone here who doesn't know your son Jesus, if there's anyone here that might be like that truck driver, maybe they've been baptized, maybe they've been confirmed, maybe they know church, but they don't know your son Jesus as their personal savior. I pray that right now they would place their faith in your son Jesus Christ, just like that truck driver did. What you need to do is just call upon Jesus, acknowledge your sin before him, and call upon him to forgive you of your sins and ask him to be your savior. It's that simple, and he wants to be your savior. That's why he died on the cross, was to save you from your sins. And if you need that, ask Jesus to be your savior. And some of you here are believers in Jesus Christ already. And some of you need to be praying for those that are trusting Jesus as their savior in this very moment. Some of you, you may need to be repenting because you trusted Jesus as your Savior, but then you try to also, it's like you think that the way you grow in your spiritual journey, like you trusted Jesus by faith, but now you're supposed to earn it. Now you're supposed to do it. And that's not how it works. It continues by faith. So some of you might need to confess that sin to the Lord. He's faithful. He's just. He'll forgive you. He'll cleanse you. He'll bring you right with him. And ask him to be your joy. Some of you might need the Lord just to speak truth into your life. Maybe from the verses that we've read today, maybe another truth he wants to speak into you. Some of you just need to hear a simple truth that he loves you. He loves you. And there's nothing you can do to earn that. There's nothing you can do that's so bad that he won't anymore. He loves you. And as I just continue to pray, Father, I pray that you would bind up the enemy, the father of lies, that he would speak no lies at this moment, that you would speak truth into our hearts, that you'd wash over us with your word. God, guide us by your truth. Transform us by your truth. Don't let us be conformed to this world, but transform us. Please transform me. Give me the freedom of what it is to be secure in you. Help me to know the satisfaction of knowing you. I pray that be true for all my friends too. I pray for anyone who's struggling on whether to trust your son Jesus as Savior or not. I pray you'd lay, lay a deep conviction on their hearts of their sin. And you'd show them, you'd offer them the freedom, the forgiveness, what it is to know you, to accept what you've done for them rather than trying to do it on their own. And I pray right now that if they're hesitant, that they would trust your son Jesus to see you in this very moment.